Being fruitful is a good thing. We all want to be fruitful. We all want to be used by God. We all want life to work out right. Proverbs is a book that tells you and I how to live right so that at the end of the day, we can live right. It tells us how to live in such a way that our lives will bear fruit. It's not a moralism. It's just trying to help us see that we reap uh, what we sow. Here's the problem, though. Sometimes in our quest for being fruitful, uh, fruitfulness can start to eclipse faithfulness. Fruitfulness starts to become our North Star, and it becomes a bigger concern than actually being faithful, right? Good things uh, turn to be bad things when we make them ultimate things, things that they should not be. And I think sometimes in our quest to wanting to be used by God or wanting to be used to do great things that it can eclipse what our focus really should be in its faithfulness towards God. Um, how do I know if this is me? Look back at your prayer life. What do you, what do you pray for? Look at the spiritual conversations that you have. Do they constantly surround just fruitfulness and just being used? Uh, this became very clear for me, and I know I've shared this on multiple occasions here, but it is the point of my life where this truth had become the clearest. I'm 34 right now, and since the time I was 22, I've been involved in some sort of pastoral ministry. About five years ago, my wife and I uh, were granted a sabbatical from the last church that I was a part of, and so we go to D.C., wake up the first morning there in D.C., Four and a half months where I don't have to think about how I'm going to use God's word for anybody else but for my own heart and soul. And I sit down with my coffee and my journal and I start to pray and I can't. Not having anybody else to reach out to, to counsel, to preach or to teach, I found that I had become completely unacquainted to relating to God outside of being useful for him. I think I, like so many of us, come to this wrong conclusion about the relationship between faithfulness and fruitfulness or our usefulness to God. We think that somehow uh, if we're more useful, then God is more uh, approved of us or he's more okay with us. And if we start to measure God's approval by our usefulness, then we're going to come to very wrong conclusions about God and ourselves. We'll presume on his grace and we'll start to believe that we're actually the exception to the rule. Here's a few ways that you can know if you found yourself in this trap or starting to slip towards that trap of this connection in between fruitfulness, faithfulness. Step one, do you get shocked beyond belief when somebody that is incredibly fruitful in men industry turns out to be a fraud. Does it make it hard to compute as if I don't get it? They were used so well. How could they live a life that was so faithless? This took, took place for me in college. A guy that was instrumental in uh, help, help, helping me grow in my walk with the Lord. 
uh, in June of 2003, uh, me and Richard or groomsmen in his wedding. In October of that same year, we're sitting in the house with his wife after he just left her. Here's how else you can know if you've made the wrong connection in between God's approval of us and our being useful. Do you get self-centered when it comes to answered prayers? When God answers your prayers, do you look at yourself and think, man, I must be living right. There must be something that I'm doing that makes him answer. Or three, do you get shifty when it comes to your standards? Do you find yourself in a place where it becomes easy to justify and compromise on certain things that you know that you should do because it has worked out in the end for you or because you say, well, I know I'm going to do this. I know that we shouldn't live together. I know that we shouldn't be involved like this. I know that I shouldn't spend money this way. I know that I shouldn't talk like this to them, but it worked out, so it must be okay. After spending six months in Proverbs, I think we need a counterbalance. And I think uh, one of the greatest ways to counterbalance this um, is not to start with propositions, but to walk you through a story. Um, the story of a life of somebody that maybe in churches we grew up, he was couched as a hero, but as you actually go back and read his story, you find that he's not really one. A guy by the name of Samson. So if you would turn with me to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. Um, if you're using one of the Bibles that's un un underneath your seat, it's going to be on page 135. Um, we're actually going to go through his whole life. Uh, so that's four chapters of the Bible. Um, and I'm not going to preach for that long, right? So there's going to be a lot of stuff that we gloss over. The scriptures are going to be on the screen. I'm going to try my best to draw your attention to the things that are in here. Uh, but I just want to kind of share with you right now, if you are not looking at your Bible, you are going to be very bored today because we're going to spend a lot of time in it. So it'll be on your screen, pull it up on your phone, pull it out right now. And we're going to spend some time and look at his birth his life and his death, and see if we can draw some lessons or conclusions. 13, 1 through 5, about his birth. And the very first point um, is this. Uh, your fruitfulness has been predetermined. Your fruitfulness has already been predetermined. I bring this up because as we talk about your identity it is something that is received. It is not achieved, right? You don't work for it. It's a gift from God. 13, 1 through 5, it says this. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Just a little context of this book. For the seventh time in the book of Judges, what's going on right here is Israel completely bails on the standards that God sets for them. Seven times. The thing about this book is you read through it, it's all about cycles, right? So what takes place is they sin, they get punished. God sells them into slavery. 
they experience the weight of their sin and they cry out for God to save them. And every time that they cry out, do you know what the good news is? That God saves them, right? God is eager to save. It was God's idea. Sometimes God lets us experience the weight of our sin so that we'll feel it and cry out to him. And when we cry out to him, do you know what God does? God saves. That's the good news. God saves and restores. And then they're faithful for some time. And then they sin again. And they get punished. And they cry out and God saves. And they say over and over and over. Here we find ourselves at the tail end of one of this, these cycles. Verse 2. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines for 40 years. Sorry, that's the end of verse 1. Look, there was a certain man from Zorah from the family of Dan whose name was Manoah. His wife was unable to conceive and had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, It's true that you were unable to conceive and have no children, but you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now please be careful not to drink wine or beer or to eat anything unclean, for indeed you will conceive and give birth to a son. You must never cut his hair because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth and he will begin to save Israel from the power of the Philistines. The good news is that when people cry out, God saves them. Here's the better news. By this time in the book of Judges, people had so devolved into their sin that when they experienced the weight of their sin, they accept it as a fact of life and they don't even cry out to, to God. But the better news is that a God that will respond to people crying out for help is a God that even when people don't cry out for help, he comes and intervenes. Isn't that good news, y'all? And it's not just good news that he comes out, but he's going to provide his help from out of nowhere. God could have chosen anybody to raise up the next Savior, but he intentionally chooses a woman who's barren that can't have kids and says, you're going to be the one that brings this Savior into the world so that you and I would see that with God, there's no such thing as a dead end. With God, his back is never against the wall. With God, even if you don't see a way for him to change things, he makes a way out of no way. This is the God that we serve. These are the small kindnesses that are all sprinkled through the Bible so that as you and I get to know God, we can be reminded of these truths so that no situation that we find ourselves in, absolutely none, is ever completely hopeless if God is still writing the story. God, in verse 5, relays Samson's purpose before he's born. It's not going to be about his character. It's not going to be about the choices that he makes. God has already predetermined his usefulness. And here's what I want you to see. The only difference between you and Samson is that God was explicit and forthright and preemptively explicit when it came to Samson's purpose. He may not have been so with yours. But it doesn't mean that he's any less intentional when it comes to how it is that he will use you. He can't be if he knows all. Psalm 139 verse 16, right? 
David says this, God, God, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and uh, planned before a single one of them began. Jeremiah 1.5, God says this, look, I chose you, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you began. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And Jeremiah is going to try to buck against God and say, God, I don't want that purpose. But God says, too bad, you're stuck with it. The reason why I, I bring this up, y'all, is I want y'all to be encouraged, right? All of us that are made in the Im Im image of God have been instilled with a sense of dignity, that God has a plan to reveal himself to the world, and he's chosen to use people like you and I to do it. Be encouraged. There's purpose. And in being encouraged, I hope that it sets you free from envy. I hope that it sets you free from staring at somebody else's life and saying, I wish that I could do what they did. That's not what God made you for. God ain't make you to do what they did. God, make, God didn't just determine that you would have a purpose. He determined, and he has determined specifically how he intends to use you for your glory. Your story is not your story. It's God's. Samson's story is not about Samson. It's about God. Look there in verse 24 to 25 of the same chapter. So the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. The boy grew and the Lord blessed him. Then the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in the camp of Dan between Zora and Eshtel. What that word stir, it's like, and so God used him, God blessed him, and then God was the one that started to move him on his way for his purposes. Your usefulness to God, your story has already been written. God, before the world began, has already determined how it was that he'll use you. And sometimes we can tend to think that my main problem in life is that I just don't have a clear picture of what God wants for me. If I had a clear picture, then things would go well. And Samson's life tells us that's not the case. That a clear picture of what God wants to use you for without a, a compelling or a complementary passion for God can birth a life that's ultimately destructive. What, what we see in his life is that Samson had an advantage that nobody else in the book had. Everybody else was called in their adulthood to do what God had called them to do. Samson knew before he was born what it was that God called him to do, and he had time to prepare and to work things out. But what we're going to see throughout his life is that he doesn't. And what his life's going to do, it's going to blow up our paradigm in between usefulness and approval by God. What you find in the life of Samson is somebody that lived like a fool. He lives for his own delight 
but he's used by God incredibly. But in him being used by God in an incredible way, none of us should look to his life as a whole as we see here and try to imitate it. His story here is told as a warning of what not to do. Chapter 14. Yeah, and again, I'm going to try to walk through this. We're going to see how he lived his life for himself in the way that he made decisions, in the way that he related to God, but ultimately we'll see how God will use him. Chapter 14, 1 through 3, it says this. Samson went down to Timnah and saw a young Philistine woman there. He went back and told his father and mother, I have seen a young Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, Can't you find a young woman among your relatives or among any of our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines for a wife? But Samson told his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. The, this translation, uh, it doesn't do it justice. What he says is, get her for me, for she's right in my eyes. They try to warn him against her. Verse 7, then he went and spoke to the woman because she seemed right to Samson. or She was right in his eyes. Samson lives his life completely governed by what he sees and not what God says. The epitome of a fool is somebody that walks by their sight, that all they see is what's real. So when his parents tell him to refrain from marrying somebody that's not a part of their tribe, their admonition or their charge is not racist. It's religious, right? So it's not don't marry her because we don't want to breed our type. It is, no, listen, when God put the concern in the authors of the Old Testament, his primary concern was, no, no, listen, if you marry somebody else that doesn't have as their heart and heritage, God being at the center of all of what they do, do you know what they'll do? They'll lead you away from God. So his concern is this. No, no, listen. There's going to be folks that say, no, 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 no. You worship God. I respect that. Uh, but I'm just not. Let's be married. Let's be together. And, 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 and what the charge or what the concern is, is this. Listen, there is no way to respect God without making him the absolute center of absolutely everything. So what takes place is... They're saying, no, no, careful. Samson, if you're led by your eyes and not what God says, whatever faith, whatever devotion, however strong you are, it's going to pull you away from God because you're making a commitment to somebody that supersedes the commitment that you've already made to God. So in that act, you're saying somebody is more important than the God that should be the absolute center of absolutely everything. They warn him about that. And so here's what I want to bring out in this story. In verse 4, he says, forget it. I'm going to go down anyways. On his way to disobey God, look here in verse uh, 
5, Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Suddenly, a young lion came roaring at him. Samson is actively on his way to disobey God, to be faithless. And what takes place? The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him, and he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he did not tell his father and mother what he had done. Then he went and spoke to the woman because she seemed right to Samson. In the midst of Samson being absolutely faithless, what God should have done was let him experience death as a result of that. But that's not what takes place. His greatest feats of strength throughout this whole story often comes at times when he's going the opposite way of what God had called him to do. So look, God is not going to use Samson because of Samson. God is going to use Samson in spite of Samson. Look here at verse 8. After some time when he returned to marry her, and this is going to give a picture of what God does. He left the road to see where the lion's carcass. Look, and there was a swarm of bees with honey in the carcass. He scooped some honey into his hands and ate it as he went along. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them and they ate it. But he did not tell them uh, that he had scooped the honey from the lion's carcass. All right. Has anybody seen a dead animal on the side of the road? Has anybody seen bugs in a dead animal on the side of the road? Has anybody seen a beehive creating honey on a dead animal on the side of the road? No. What takes place is you get maggots, worms, and all of that. But here we see these bees creating honey, something sweet, out of something decaying. And this is going to be a picture of the life of Samson. Samson's life is going to be like this dead carcass. And out of this life, God's going to bring something incredibly sweet. And so here's what we see through his life. Look. And the same thing about Samson is going to be true about us. Your propensity to trash your life is no match for God's ability to recycle it. Listen, your propensity to trash your life is no match for God's ability to recycle it. It's four chapters, and we can't go through the whole thing like this. It's a fantastic story. I'm going to give you the cliff notes or the little IMDB yeah, a little like plot, some summary of what takes place. Samson wants to marry a Philistine. He's empowered by God to kill a lion, his life spared. He eats this food that would make him ceremonially unclean. Then he gives some to his mom and his dad, and he makes them unclean. He makes them worse off. He uses this riddle to try to hustle some men out of their clothes and their things. These men go to his wife. His wife but betrays him and gives them the answer to his riddle. And, and the rest of it plays out like a kung fu movie. Samson gets mad at them, and he kills them. Verse 4, right? Uh, look up here at verse 4. Sorry. Now his father and mother did not know that this was from the Lord, who wanted the Philistines to provide an opportunity for a confrontation. At this time, the Philistines were ruling 
Israel. God is going to use the sinfulness, this vengeful heart of this man to enact justice. Samson kills them. They get mad. They kill his wife and her dad. Samson gets mad, goes back down, kills a whole bunch of them. They get upset. They tell the Israelites, y'all better give Samson to us or y'all are going to be in trouble. And these Israelites that are the people of God that have had a history of finding themselves in trouble, being able to cry out to God and to see God save them, they are so trapped in the slave mentality that they have that they don't even think to cry out to God, but they think to acquiesce to the demands of the people that oppress them. They turn over Samson, and Samson, once again, Judge just chapter 15, verses 14 and 15, when he came to Lahai, the Philistines came to meet him with shouting. Look, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him, and the ropes on his arms and wrists became like burnt flax and fell off. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand, took it, and killed a thousand men with it. Look at verse 16. Right? The choices that Samson makes are all going to be for his delight, the strength that God gave him. He'll use it as his own plaything. And then look at how he starts to relate to God. God just set him free. God helped him. And then after he does this, in verse 16, Samson freestyles about how he uh, <laughs> was so dope, right? With the jawbone of a donkey, I've plied them in heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I've killed a thousand men. <laughs> verse 17. When he finished speaking... He threw away the jawbone, and he named that place Ramath Lahai, if you look at the footnotes in your Bible. Do you know what he names that place? Not after what God had done, but what he did. Look at how he relates to God. Verse 18. He lives for his own delight, and then he relates to God as a butler. The only time that he asks, talks to God, this whole story, is when he needs something. Verse 18. 18, he became very thirsty and called out to the Lord, you have accomplished this great victory through your servant. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So he cries out to God and says, God, you did this through me. Now I'm going to die of thirst. Help me out. And do you know what God does? He doesn't do how we do when we get that friend that only calls us when they need something. God doesn't screen his call, but God, God answers his call. 19, so God split a hollow place in the ground at Lehi, and water came out of it. After Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. That is why he named it En Hakore. You look in the footnotes again. What does he name it? Spring of the one who cried out. He prays for God to give him water out of nowhere. It comes out of a rock. And he memorializes that place, not based on what God did, but based on what he did. This is going to be known as the place where the person cried out and God answered his cry. 
chapter 16, it starts off, and the first three verses are him going to a town, sleeping with a prostitute. People plot for his life. He's woken up in the middle of the night and leaves out of the city in this great feat of strength, tears the gates down. And then he goes on, and he meets Delilah, right? We all know how this plays out. Finds himself in the same place, driven by what he sees and not by what God says. A few times she asks him the secret to his strength, and he lies to her. And he gets up, and enemies come and attack him, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and and saves him and helps him. He presumes on God's grace. He knows. He knows that his ability to trash his life is no match for God's ability to recycle it. And I think that he thinks his usefulness says something about him. Um, I'm not much of a recycler. My wife wishes that I would be. Um, so when like throughout the week, I you know, drink soda, you know, and cans and bottles, you know, I'm throwing away cardboard in our trash can. Um, but then when trash day comes and I start to roll both the trash can and the recycling bin down to the curb, um, I notice that things that I consume that Chandra doesn't have found their way not into the trash heap, but into the recycling and so what I see is that, oh, listen, that says nothing about me. It says everything about somebody who can come behind me and take the things that I've discarded and put them in a place where it's used for good. This is what God does, not just in the life of Samson, but in our life, the things that we waste, the things that we discard. God's going to use this, and Samson's here to show us that truth, and I just want y'all to hear me, sometimes God's grace in our lives is that he does just that. Takes us our mess ups, takes the things that we've done, and he frees us from experiencing the consequences of that. Throughout his life, Samson experienced God's grace in one way, being freed from the consequences of his actions. But sometimes God shows his grace. Not in how he frees us, but in how he secures the consequences for us. How he makes sure we experience them. And it's not punishment. It's God's grace. Here, here's what I mean by that. Look at verse 17. He told her the whole, uh, chapter, chapter 16. He told her the whole truth and said to her, my hair has never been cut because I am a Nazarite. To God from birth. If I'm shaved, my strength will leave me and I will become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah realized that he had told her the whole truth, she sent this to mess message to the Philistine leaders. Come one more time, for he has told me the whole truth. The Philistine leaders came to her and brought the silver with them. Then she let him fall asleep on top of her lap and called the man to shave off the seven braids of his head. In this way, she made him helpless and his strength left him. Look at this. Then she cried, Samson, the Philistines are here. And here's one of the saddest verses of the Bible. 
when he awoke from his sleep, he said, I will escape as I did before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Presuming on God's grace only goes so far. Sometimes he works out a mighty deliverance out of nowhere, but sometimes here's how we see his grace. By letting us experience the consequences of our waywardness. And here's why I think that it's grace. Verse 21, right? And 22, his grace comes in at least three ways. One is grace comes in his patience. Samson should have experienced this downfall a long time ago. But he didn't. That's part of God's grace and his patience. But look here at verse 21. The Philistine seized him and gouged out his eyes. Sometimes God's grace is not just his patience, but his pruning of us. Do you remember his story? What was it that got him into trouble his whole life? His eyes. And here, part of God's grace is the very thing that led him into sin. God cut it off. It gives new light to when Christ says, hey, if your right hand causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, it's better to lose that thing than to continue in that path. Then they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he was forced to grind grain in the prison. Sometimes God's grace comes in his patience with us. Sometimes God's grace comes in his pruning. But then God's grace comes in a promising future, in a promising hope. Look at verse 22, this short Easter egg that's put here for us. But his hair began to grow back after it had been shaved. Samson lived his whole life running away from God. It finally caught up with him, and he experienced the weight of his sin, but the story ends up, and it tells us that even Samson isn't beyond hope. Even he is not be beyond God already starting to grow back the very thing that he squandered. God using you. God using us. It says more about God than it does about us. We see it not just in his birth and in his life, but in his death. And I'm going to rush through this. I'm going to read it and explain it. Verse 23. Now the Philistine leaders gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to their God, Dagon. They rejoiced and said, our God has handed over our enemy, Samson, to us. When the people saw him, they praised their God and said, our God has handed over over to us our enemy who destroyed our land and who multiplied our dead. When they were in good spirits, they said, bring Samson here to entertain us. So they brought Samson from prison and he entertained them. They had him stand between pillars. Here's what we see here. Samson's faithfulness did not, or his faithlessness did not just reflect back on Samson. It reflected back on the God that he served. That now you have a nation of folks who God's plan has always been to reveal his 
greatness, not just to condemn people, but to invite them in. When they see the faithlessness of somebody that claims to serve their God, it reinforces in their heart that this God that he serves is a joke. It reinforces their confidence in the idols that they've already placed their faith in. And what was true for him is true for us. When we live in a way that doesn't highlight the goodness of God, it has more than just an effect on us. A world is watching, making their judgment of Christ, not on what they read and hear, but what they see in Christians. And so Samson, and here's where his story is often told, right? We kind of read this story as Samson was a guy, he did all this stuff wrong, he made a bad choice with one girl, he got put to death, and he, in this last time of faithfulness, said, God, give me strength one more time so that I can avenge you. Verse 28, chapter 16, he called out to the Lord, Lord, please remember me, strengthen me, God, just one more. Look, with one act of vengeance, let me pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. His eyes are gouged out. He can't see. All he hears are them taunting God. And even in his death, what he says is, God, help me out so that I can pay them back for what they stole from me. Verse 29, Samson took hold of the two middle pillars supporting the temple and leaned against them, one on his right hand, the other on his left. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. He pushed with all his might and the temple fell on the leaders and all the people in it. And those he killed at his death were more than they killed in his life. God answers. God used Samson incredibly but his life is not worth imitating. He dies. His family gets him. They bury him. And then, do you know how the rest of the book plays out? Even though he delivered them from the people that oppressed them, this book ends out not with outside foes trying to oppress them, but with this nation infighting and killing one another. So this book ends with this sad story that even if people are freed from the external constraints, they still have this internal battle that they have to fight. The enemy within is greater than the one from without. But the story of Samson is not about Samson. It's about God. And the way that we see that is we contrast the life, or the birth, the life, and the death to another man that comes a few thousand years later. Jesus Christ, his origin story, mirrors Samson. You have a nation of people that are bound not just by the Romans, but by the, their unrighteousness and their sin. This is true about all of us. We're bound by a much greater foe than the Philistine. And so what God does is he takes this young girl who's unable to have kids and he speaks this word of promise. He says that your baby has fruitfulness, has usefulness that is predetermined. 
And although Samson and Christ, their birth seemed the same, their lives couldn't have been any more different. Samson left his dad's house early to go and chase skirts, eating things that would make him unclean and sharing it with a group of folks that would make them unclean as well. Jesus is raised up and he stays in his father's house to study the scripture. He spends his whole life making unclean people clean. Samson trusted his eyes. He lived for himself. Jesus didn't live for himself. Samson used his incredible might and power to get what he wanted. Jesus could have gotten what he wanted, but he takes his incredible might and power and he shows not just us, but the rest of the world, there's something more glorious about God to be seen in the way that I deny myself, not the way that I use my gifts to to get what I want. They both were used by God incredibly. But it was only of Jesus that God looks down and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And although their lives couldn't have been more different, notice how eerily similar their deaths were. Both die with their arms outstretched. Both share their fate at the hands of enemies. Being betrayed by somebody that was close enough to give them a kiss. Samson, for his reckless life, All of his sins caught up with him, and he experienced that faith. That fate. Jesus lived a righteous life and had no sins to catch up with him. But ours did. All the sins of mankind, those that were committed before he came into the world, and all of them that are committed after Jesus Christ took all of those. And while Samson in his death is crying for vengeance for people that stole his eyes, Jesus on the cross is crying out for God's forgiveness for people that stole his life. Jesus in his death experienced a fate worse than Samson. For the forgiveness of our sins. Every one of them. Samson stayed in the grave as a sign of God's disapproval of the way that he lived. Jesus goes in the grave. And does an early checkout three days later. Reminding us that he wasn't just useful to God in this life. But he was approved by God. And he saves. To the uttermost. Recycling the trash that we make of our lives. Here's why I say that. We've read Samson's story. And it seems like there's nothing redeemable in it. But when you go to Hebrews 11, and it gives this story of the hall of faith, people that had faith of God, the faith of God, and somehow they earn 
or they get the approval of God, do you know who finds their name in there? Samson. Samson, of all people, finds his name next to the Davids and the Abrahams and the Isaacs and the Jacobs and the Josephs. Not because anything that we see here. God's work in our lives says more about God than it does about us. His faithfulness in sending Jesus, right? Salvation, y'all, is not a reward for how faithful you have been. It is God's gift. And having this gift is the very thing that makes us faithful. There's no preconditions that we have to meet. God has already determined how he will use us. That's not our main goal or our main aim. The reward for our faithfulness, the reward of Christ's faithfulness is intimacy with God. And the reward that you and I experience when we live in the way that God has called us to live is that we get to experience more of that. I'm going to close with just two things, two that I've stated before, and that's it. Your identity is received. It is not achieved. It's not a result of hard work. It's not a result. You are not worth what you can do for God. You're worth so much more than that. God's going to use you, and the way that he'll use you says more about him than it does about you. So we can be faithful and spend our primary time in intimacy and let any ministry or usefulness flow out from that. So what that may mean for some of us is to take a step back from all the ambitious things that we want to do. For some of us, it may mean not justifying the ways that We've been faithless just because God has used us in a great way. It may mean us taking a step back and focusing not on fruitfulness, but faithfulness. And two, what this does, it helps you and I to flee temptation. To be reminded you know, that God is a very, very good God regardless of how much strength we think that we have, uh, it's not enough for us to stand on our own. We are wholly dependent on God, but that's good news because God is completely and utterly faithful forever. So you and I can rest. Knowing that our goal is to get to know God, to be satisfied in Jesus and what he's done for us, and to spend our time planting that seed, working that soil, and trust that God will bring the fruit of our lives that he wants. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word and for the fact that your son has secured uh, more than just our usefulness, Father. Your son has secured your approval for us. You're no longer a judge. You're not an employer that is intent on getting the most out of your employees, your father that wants relationship. Help us to embrace that truth, Father. Help us to live as those that are here in this world to reflect 
your beauty, Father. I pray that that would change us, that we would find you not just as a God that's useful to give us what we need or what we want, but a God that is utterly beautiful, Father. We ask that you would do all this in Jesus' name. Amen.